Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us for another edition of Midrats. As I always like to do, if you are with that esteemed cohort that makes the extra effort to join us live, uh, an extra special treat, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, that's where you'll find Paul, as he usually is uh, standing his watch station there on the quarter deck. That's where you'll find the chat room. Uh, if you have some observations that you want to share during the course of the show, or if there's a question you would like for us to direct to our guest over the course of the next hour, that is the perfect place to put it. And if you don't already, just want to do my altar call for you, if uh you know, you can't always join us live, or if you can just get part of it, then you got to go take care of some business. You don't have to miss a single minute of Midrats. Just go over to iTunes, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, whichever podcast aggregator you get. Midrats will be there for you. Go ahead and subscribe, and that way we'll be waiting for your morning commute uh, or time that's more convenient to you. And let's just go ahead and dive into today's show. And today we're going to have our returning guests. Brent Sadler, Captain of the United States Navy, retired and senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Brent's joining us today to uh, talk about, and we're going to kind of use it as our kickoff for our conversation. Who knows where we'll go to? But he has a new book out, U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, A New Strategy for Facing the Chinese and Russian Threat. And that will kick us off for the next hour. Brent, welcome back to Midrats. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Kind of as a uh, low-hanging fruit here, give you a chance to, to, to set the table. Let's just do the basics. Mm. Tell us a bit about your book and uh, who's your target audience for it. So I guess the targeted audience, first and foremost, it was written for uh, folks that are coming in to the Department of the Navy at, and also at the COCOMs. Uh, UCOM, most importantly, and Indo-PACOM at the top of that list uh, to try to figure out how can they get ahead of this, this competition that we're in with the Chinese, but at the same time not get distracted. So that's the first audience. You know, the policy wonks, the, the operational guys in uniform, and ladies uh, flying and driving the ships and the aircraft at sea uh, on the front lines, the pointy end of the spear. So that's the first group and to try to help them put a lot of their actions into context and maybe show some opportunities. And then, of course, Congress, the staffers, the folks from day-to-day are trying to make sense of a lot of different crazy recommendations and proposals, and then also navigating the politics and things and try to give them some consist- constancy in behind the decisions and the thought processes. And then the bottom is this, like folks like my, like my father and my friends out there that really have never been in the Navy, never been in the government, but in the last couple of years really have gotten to be very concerned about what's going on with China and seeing us headed to what looks to be an unavoidable major war. And partly it's to say, hey, look, there's a way out of that. 
and there's a way to think about what you're seeing that'll help hopefully make a little bit more sense. So those are the three audiences from top to bottom, uh, small to large. Well, those are important audiences. Um, one of the things your book, let me let me say that the book is really dense with important information. But one of the things I think you focus on, uh, importantly for us, is the leadership, the need for leadership. And I think you said at one point that. Uh, at a time when the Navy desperately needs visionary leadership, turmoil in the most senior ranks began with a last-minute withdrawal. This is when Admiral mm -hmm. Moran was left. But uh, more importantly than that, a lack of accessible and coherent maritime vision for great power competition contributed to the takeover of, in the mid-2020 mm -hmm. of the Navy's future fleet-building plant. Talk a little bit about yeah. uh, where our leadership is and the kind of leaders we really need to, to, to move a plan forward uh, to, yeah. to get the Navy we, we need as you, as you see it. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've spent a lot of time talking with uh, John Lehman about his experience and folks that were in the Reagan White House with several, and I was lucky enough to meet several of them. Fred um, McFarland, before he passed away, was able to talk to him. And one of the clearest points for, for to get in the situation we are in now to build and to field the Navy that we need uh, you have to have the president's – the president's got to have the Secretary of the Navy's back. And you have to have a Secretary of the Navy who is aggressive and who understands the uniform – senior uniform leadership and understands how the Navy works to drive and spearhead policies but also operations. John Lehman, most importantly, early on, knew that by having the fleet go up in the North Atlantic was going to make a statement, was going to challenge a lot of faulty assumptions, and that all things would become more possible later. Um, so that's the key thing. You have to have a creative, innovative mind behind that in leadership today because the problems we have before us, they are much more complex. They're much more widespread uh, than they were during the Cold War with the Soviets, which was really a, you know, an ideologically based and military-to-military -military kind of uh, confrontation or competition with the Chinese. They're inside the fence line. And so creativity, imagination, forceful leadership, and then having the, you know, the, you know, basically going to bat and to speak truth to power out publicly is something that we need a lot more of. And as we turn a corner uh, in the Navy and we have a new chief of naval operations ostensibly coming in, uh, hitting the deck plates running with what that is, what the Navy needs to be the first five minutes of the, of the next term, and then to stick to it. Um, in, a, in a nutshell, that's kind of where my mind is and what was animating my thoughts Back at that time, and back in 2020, when the Navy lost control of its future fleet design. I really like how you, you brought in to a point, because everybody likes to talk about, you know, we hear, we hear it once, we've heard it a thousand times. It's a, it's a new Cold War, dot, dot, dot. Well, this is what we did against the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, et cetera. I, I've been guilty of that as well. But there is a fundamental difference in the fact that uh, – the Soviet Union, it was an ideological struggle, whereas what we're looking with China is a much more, to use a new agey type of word, it's a much more holistic challenge that really goes back mm -hmm. to, in many ways, I, I think, the Cold War was a historical anomaly because it was so um, outside of the religious wars. It really was an ideological struggle about the nature of 
society and how you're going to order it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the challenge from the People's Republic of China, it goes back to something as old as uh, when our uh, upper Neolithic hunter-gatherers are trading pelts on canoes down major um, uh, waterways. It has to do with economics. Economics power requires military power to protect it, and military power brings with it political power and influence and also cultural power. It all kind of flows with each other. And you had that quote from Sir Walter Raleigh early on in the book, and you can see the discussion about economics and industry and that part of the competition throughout the book. Talk a little bit about that, the economic part of this, that in many discussions and people looking for reference points, uh, people don't get a good firm hold of it. Yeah, this is probably the most unique part of the book. I mean, to some of us, I mean, a lot of us that studied naval history grew up or lived around naval bases, we've seen it. It's kind of like just it's it's obvious, which makes it all the more remarkable that folks outside of that experience don't quite make the connection between naval presence or military bases overseas and how that enables economic trade and relations between two two sovereign countries. Um, and well, I condensed the whole thought down into one sentence, and that, and that was that navies exist to assure access to markets and influence events on land for political ends. I mean, that's in a nutshell what our Navy has done, what it needs to do, and what it is not doing effectively in the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War. And so a couple of interesting case studies, the one that most remarkable, other than my childhood growing up around in the Pacific, in and around bases, seeing this, was in Djibouti. In 2010, I'm sorry, 2001, the eve of the September 11th attacks that day, the French Foreign Legion, I think, had just left, so there really wasn't any security presence in Djibouti. It was a backwater of a backwater. There wasn't any economic trade of anything to speak of with anyone in the world, and it certainly didn't have a port or any economic ties to the rest of the African continent. Now in comes American Special Forces. There's an infusion of security presence where there wasn't before, but most importantly, there's some trade, there's some economic stimulus that goes in. Those that you need to have a place to put your, your uh, special forces. You need to have a place to land your helicopter and the locals provide that. So that becomes economic business livelihood. And that little spark grew. And there's a graph in the book that lays this out and shows how over time, Djibouti has become a center for economic livelihood in the Horn of Africa, and from Ethiopia and Kenya and everywhere else to bring to their deep water port. And that's centered on maritime. And so naval security and the naval presence was really the spark that started off. And as I look around, there's lots of other opportunities in other places where that's also occurred. Um, but that recognition needs to catch on more than just the navalist. Um, a missed opportunity on this and really seizing on this was back in 2018 Congress passed the Build Act, and that repurposed the Overseas Private Investments Corporation, and it also doubled from like 30 to $60 billion of capital investment or risk that they could take to compete with the Chinese. There was no way they were going to do that with $60 billion, for one. But it was an effort to try to get into this game. And unfortunately, uh, after the Build Act was pa- passed and we repurposed OPIC to now be the Development Finance Corporation, Navy never sent anyone 
over to be embedded in that organization to be on the lookout for really interesting ideas to invest in ports or dredging or building airfields or even roads that connect airfields to ports in strategic places like, I say, Manus Island, Subic Bay, Solomon Island. I mean, these are places now that are in the news for all the wrong reasons, but there was, an, there was a potential there, and I'm still hopeful that the Navy will, the Department of the Navy will actually start to play in this economic statecraft more aggressively. And they, they, they'll push on an open door if they actually try, but it's so far out of the way that we've done business that institutionally, bureaucratically, it, it, it's going to take a little getting used to, quite frankly. And hopefully this book will help. Well, uh, one of the terms you just used is statecraft. And in the book, you talk about the need for naval statecraft. Um, and and as you use that, you, you use that to lead into the fact the Navy needs to be restructured and, and, and investments mm. need to be made. Can you kind of discuss what naval statecraft is? Yeah, so I, I, I get this question a lot. And, and one of the things I've tried to do is by, by example, but in a nutshell, naval statecraft is – Developmental economics and economic statecraft, which is the use of trade and trade policies to shape the policies of, an, of a target country or region, with active diplomacy. This isn't the diplomacy that we're used to where we react. This is diplomacy that goes forward and says, okay, we need access to this market, this base, and then the diplomacy goes and sets that up and gets it, not responding to a crisis or responding to a host nation's issues. So it's proactive diplomacy. And then the final part, and that's a forward naval presence tied into it. So those are the elements of it. And the case that I gave out, Djibouti, is, a, is an example of naval statecraft kind of playing out heavy on the economics, but purely by coincidence. The other case, the example of naval statecraft playing out, and again, having talked to General Stilwell, who was, he was a, a political appointee at the Department of State for East Asia's and uh, and the Pacific Affairs, EAP there, he kind of let, let known that when we had the West Kapala incident in, in the spring to the summer of 2020, there was no grand plan behind that. And for, for your listeners that may not recall, I go into a lot more detail in the book about this. And my friend Hunter Styers has a whole effort with USNI to, about a counterinsurgency at sea, which also really leverages this experience. The West Kapala was a contracted deep seabed survey vessel by the Malaysian oil industry pet, uh, that was out in the South China Sea in Malaysian EEZ. In their waters, the Chinese Coast Guard and maritime militia had been harassing early on in 2020. And it just so happened that was, this, that was an election year in Taiwan, so naval, U.S. naval presence was kind of on point, was nearby. And fast forward a few months of this, 7th Fleet uh, Admiral makes a statement about why there's this presence proximate to this, this uh, West Kapala and Chinese uh, furball that's developing. And his response was also unique. He said, our Navy is in, the forward, in a forward presence in order to secure our interests, but also, and I'm paraphrasing, but to also safeguard the rules-based order that our partner countries can exercise their economic rights. And that, the light bulb went off. Having been an attache in Kuala Lumpur, this is a language that resonates because those countries that are in dispute with China, their economic livelihood is at risk. 
And so finally you see that the United States is connecting its military presence, naval, to something that's much, very significant interest to many of these countries in Southeast Asia. So July, there's you have B-52 bombers fly around. You've got a carry strike group that is in the area. Again, there's an election in Taiwan that's really driving a lot of this, but it starts to increasingly be connected to this, this uh, dispute, this, this incident with the West Kapala and the Chinese. The Chinese eventually back off. Secretary of State, who had planned to go earlier, months earlier, to make a statement that China's maritime claims are illegal. He made, this, he made that statement pretty much after the Chinese started to back away in July, like July, mid-July of 2020. And the timing is important. So the presence, first quiet presence that were there, then the fact that you have a uniformed senior officer, 7th Fleet Commander, say, hey, our presence is tied to economic rights of our partners. And then you have the, the, the diplomat come in and say, hey, look, China's claims, why this is all happening is because China is acting illegally. And fairly quickly, after all of that, you start seeing statements out of Kuala Lumpur, out of Brunei, out of, out of uh, Vietnam, out of Jakarta, all saying the same thing. Countries that were always very circumspect, so it gave them confidence. That's an example of naval statecraft in action. Djibouti, on the one, the economic developmental aspect, heavy part of it, and then the naval presence-heavy aspect of it uh, with the West Kapala. So I know that was kind of a long, but there's lots of other cases uh, where we failed, uh, but also demonstrate naval statecraft. I like how you put in the, the naval statecraft part of it because uh, there there can and there have been occurrences where um, if, if you rely on the whole of government approach, you hope the other parts of the government are doing what they're su- supposed to. And you mentioned uh, earlier on in the hour the, the Solomon Islands. And if you look what has happened, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the last five years, but really the last ten years, the Solomon and the Marshall Islands where you know, we just assumed that was – America's backyard. There's a lot of disinterest. Mm-hmm. I know uh, everybody's favorite uh, Canadian, Cleo Pascal, was kind of uh, a lone voice in the wilderness for a few years, mm-hmm. trying to get everybody to pay attention. And you know, we've seen things such as uh, U.S. Coast Guard vessels being disinvited, told to go away. China has really increased its presence there. Uh, when you look at that Western Pacific, that we kind of lost our focus or perhaps we're a little bit too entitled in our attitude towards it. Um, How do you see the importance of these islands and those facilities and other possible reasons that we might need uh, access to them in the future? How do you see our Mm -hmm. response as a whole of government there uh, developing over the course of the last two years? Because I think people have started to pay attention to where we've had some shortcomings. Yeah, there's a couple root causes to why we are, and, and, I, and I, in my formative years, I grew up in Guam, so when we were signing the COFA agreements that were now kind of going through their second iteration, so kind of had a front row seat on this slow-moving train wreck, which is U.S. policy in the South and Central Pacific. Um, so in the last couple of years, it really, I go back to the tail end, the last two years of the Trump administration, uh, they established a special uh, assistant to the president and the NSC focused in on the Pacific Islands. And that's, consi- that's, that's persisted today. So that's one thing is an awareness and a willingness to actually stand up with you know, someone in the White House 
whose job is to, met, to focus in on this region. Uh, resourcing and getting like State Department with more ambassadors and di diplomats into the theater, more U.S. military and Coast Guard presence, that, that takes a lot longer to do. Uh, and I'd have to say I'm disappointed that only now did we actually set up an embassy back in Honara in the Solomon Islands. That was something that, we, that was tried and was argued for back in 2012 and 13 timeframe as part of the rebalanced Asia-Pacific, among other islands in the region. So now hopefully the, uh, the light is on and we'll see more. Tonga, Vanuatu, Fiji, these are all places that the diplomatic presence, where it already exists, needs to be expanded. Where it doesn't exist, it needs to be stood up. And the root cause, I just got to come back to, uh, for much of my time from like 2010 on, kind of being involved in helping inform policy and shape it when I was still in uniform, both in the Pentagon and also at, at PECA, into PECA, it, it really is a fact that we, we delegated our responsibilities in the Pacific and thought, if we pass it to our ally in, in Canberra, everything south of the equator would be just fine, that they'd be able to handle it. It's their backyard. They have common interests with us. Uh, but the Solomon Islands was a wake-up call that you can't delegate uh, all of the actions because at the end of the day, our national interests are at stake. And so one of the root causes that we have to address is we can't just delegate our national interests to an ally. We have to work and integrate with our allies and leverage their strengths better than we have. And hopefully that'll come out of uh, what we're seeing with like things like AUKUS, but hopefully it spins off into a revitalized Pacific Patrol Boat Program. Uh, and New Zealand has a hand in this too, the French as well in Tahiti. But I, I view that as probably one of the root causes. There's an arrogance in DC that these islands are easily managed, they're too far, not that valuable. And our allies in Canberra, in Canberra and in Auckland can take care of it for us. One of the uh, more interesting parts of the book, I thought, was where you talked about the global forest management uh, system we have mm -hmm. and a call to uh, treat the maritime community as a domain, which would mean that the Navy uh, should become a... a, a uh, global operational command. Like a uh, command? Yeah. yeah, like space, like space or cyber commands. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it, it's kind of a key issue. I think the way you want to restructure yeah. uh, things. Yeah. So one of my favorite questions to ask whenever I have a senior, a political appointee, or even a, a four-star admiral or general, talk about all the wonderful things that we're going to do or that we are in the midst of doing to either rebalance the Asia-Pacific or to address the Chinese threat, I always ask, and what restructuring are you doing to better execute that? And the answer is a blank stare most times, or we don't think we need to. The reality is, is China operates differently. The world is a very different kind of competition, and that's the naval statecraft, the blending all these economic and diplomat together. So, so that's the context. The so specifics, uh, for the Navy, uh, but also for just the joint force. Uh, I think for the Navy, if you're going to engage in a global maritime strategy or a global maritime competition with China, and I think that really is the bedrock for how you, you outfox the Chinese, is you got to use the maritime to our advantage. Because we have lots of friends all over the world, 
the way that we tie and bind them together is over the sea. So the competition is inherently maritime. And if you look at Taiwan, where the most likely place that we're going to go to war with China, it's naval. So the sea is the common denominator. And if we're going to be successful, you might as well unleash and align all your joint forces better to take advantage of that. And so one way of doing it is, you know, trying to keep it as simple to keep it as elegant a solution as possible. And that is, hey, just make the Navy a, a functional command. Everything in the world that's on the sea, that floats on the sea, is like Transcom for transportation. Now it's, if you need, if you need tomahawks on target or you need a, a, a vessel that comes in as a port visit to open up access to or you want to do a counter-piracy exercise, you put that request into the functional command, the Navy, and now there's the operational control globally. That'll get us back to sort of kind of the way it was when Lehman was Secretary of the Navy, and we did have a presidential, from the president down, a, a, a maritime strategy uh, that was putting the Soviets on their back heel. So that, that's one thing. The other, it gets a little kind of nitnoidy, but I think, you know, I think your listeners will appreciate this too. One of the things that used to drive me crazy, and it goes back to my flag lieutenant days, it said in fleet, when the lines that divided the numbered fleets were different. Fifth fleet for a while was kind of a subset of seventh fleet for a while, if you go back far enough, and kind of in that time frame of the, of the 90s, 99 to 2001 is when I was there, it was transitioning, and seventh fleet owned the waters all the way up to the African coast. The way that we've, we've aligned our numbered fleets to geographic combatant commands. And those geographic combatant commands are terrestrial. They're land-based. They're not based on the realities of the oceans or the trades and the cultural and historical connections that the oceans provide. And so in the book, I talk a little bit. I've written outside of the book explicitly about this, but First Fleet, South, Southeast Asia, uh, working the issues in that part of the corner of the world, Fifth Fleet taking over all the responsibilities of the Indian Ocean, having a fleet that's actually like a fourth fleet that actually is focused across from the Caribbean, across over into the Gulf of Guinea and off of Africa, that looks at those illicit trade flows, but also the natural flow of, of uh, naval and maritime activity across that front. Uh, these are the kind of things that uh, structurally that we need to have a serious discussion uh, and quite frankly, Decisions and action are needed in the very near future, and that'll solve some of our problems. Yeah, regulars and mid rats will know that you know three of my bugbears has always been, and, and I have neither the 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 brain by myself nor the access to levers of power to do any of this. But it's been clear for a long time for me that the three big things we need to fix that will enable other fixes be reform or replacement. Goldwater Nichols, COCOM structures, mm. and also acquisitions. And I, I just to, to, to back up my co-host here, I as well. I found that one of if somebody said I don't have time to read this, I would you know I don't want to do, to deface your book, but I'd rip out those pages, <laughs> put an alligator gator clip on it, and say read this in your commute, Senator, because I, I really thought mm -hmm. that is it opens the door to um, a few a few conversations you wouldn't see otherwise. And you know, when we started the show, and I said, you know, who's your target audience? And I, I agree with you that this is a, a great book to to drop in somebody's backpack when they're not paying attention uh, before they head mm -hmm. off. So you, you want the, to flesh out their, their you know, a lot of these people they're they've got a lot to do and 
they have a knowledge of maritime matters that's a mile wide, but it's a millimeter thick. And the important areas you want to thicken out that knowledge base uh, a little bit on. But I think also for those that have been uh, looking at these issues or and living them for a while, there's a lot there. You, you tap a few times. I found myself getting tapped on the shoulder. Uh, of being reminded of something that the the latest turn in the conversation had caused me to lose an appreciation of, for instance, um, uh, a big a big milestone in the last few years um, ago was America's quote energy independent unquote, and that's really great in a, in a certain segment, and that's wonderful to hear. But you know, how does that phrase in our reaction to it and there's a lot of people who are saying well now we don't need to do x y or z how does that yeah. land inside the ears of our friends and allies because you outlined for a bit mm-hmm. a lot of our most important allies and trading partners again going back to the economic tie-ins important they don't have that yeah. luxury nor will they in in our lifetime uh, talk a little bit about about that little reminder that that, mm-hmm. that the concerns of our friends and allies, if we want to keep them as friends and allies, we need to appreciate mm. the, their reality, regardless of what happens with ours. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that. So I've got a major research. It's, it's gonna, it'll be a, probably about a year before it gets published. It's, we're modeling it right now on our operational energy, the brittleness that's behind that, and that statement, energy independent, we really aren't. Um, we actually ship our crude overseas uh we also ref- refine crude that gets come in. When you look at an aggregate, yeah, we do uh, ship more crude oil overseas than we actually import. But the dynamics about what goes in the tank or what's driving the ship or the aircraft or the car, it's a little bit more muddied. And there's some serious brittleness in that. Um, and you're right. Uh, our allies have a different – and at the end of the day, al- alliances and partnerships – in peacetime as well as in war, are dictated by common national interest. And, I mean, history bears that out time and time again. Right now, our national interests are aligned very tightly with Tokyo, very tightly with Seoul, very tightly with London. But not all our allies, that Venn diagram of overlapping interests, sometimes it gets pretty thin. And we need to be very mindful and be very deliberate to try to grow our our, our national interests with our most important allies to make sure that that Venn diagram is more and more overlap, not less. And so there's a danger there. And the energy question is one of those fissure points. Uh, if you go back to like 2008, 2010, the shale oil revolution, which is still playing out now, uh, the United States could have become a significant supplier of energy needs to our allies. That would have prevented Russia holding Western Europe uh, blackmail them with energy. Now, the Germans have a vote in that. I won't get into that too much. But we could have been a more viable alternative than allowing a country that refines its crude oil in the most filthy manner to a more environmentally friendly American product. And more importantly, after Fukushima, we could have provided more natural gas and more energy to our allies in Japan and in Australia. Now, if we get in a fight with China right now, those allies rely on fuel that comes from the Persian Gulf or comes through the Straits of Malacca more specifically. 
if the United States was a real player in the energy markets, moving it, uh, that actually starts to align those interests more fully uh, and holds them closer together. Because at the end of the day, if we get in a war with China and the Chinese start threatening or, or holding off, not just by physical, like they're going to threaten to sink ships, which I think we have a thing, thing or two to say about that in the Indian Ocean, but if they were trying to lean in on economic statecraft and say, hey, Japan, if you get in the fight, or Australia, if you support the U.S. in the fight over Taiwan, you're going to find it really hard to keep the lights on. If we have a viable option, the Chinese don't have that lever over our allies in Canberra or in other places. And that's not to say that right now that that's the deciding factor. It never, ever is one thing. But again, Japan did go to war with us because we did threaten energy. So it is real. Um, but in this highly integrated global market, it's not the only one, of course. But uh, we need to be much more cognizant of the strategic value of what's under American soil and be much more serious about using that and getting it to market, not just for, pros for our own prosperity reasons, but also to make sure our allies are not blackmailed against us. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You, you, there's so much in this book that is interesting. One is that you talked about uh, regain the advantage, the uh, Indo-PACOM proposal of initiatives mm. to do a bunch of stuff, in, including securing logistic routes. And, and then later on you talk about uh, the, uh, the the question of whether U.S. has enough sea lift and and all that, and you you address that later on in the book. But I, I do not. I, I've got a really complex question there. But let's talk about the the important effort to get ready for a war, which would include sea lift. And, and you've you've said put the CBs to work restoring bases that used to exist during World War II. Mm. Uh, we, we need the uh, the uh, logistic capacity of, of large dry docks and uh, floating dry docks and all the rest of it. Kind of go through that because I, I think that is, that yeah. is a, a, a part of of naval. Uh, power that people forget about yeah there's there's actually so there's actually a, a small group of us out there that have been very vocal and some for far longer than i have um and so i tip my hat to folks that have been dealing and trying to figure out how to get you know more investment in, in revitalizing our commercial shipping and shipbuilding sector uh, but also an appreciation of the south and central pacific as a place that we're going to have to operate through and from uh that is going to be contested uh, but uh, the Seabees uh, being moved from California to Guam a few years back, that, that's a positive development. But I'd like to see them and the Army Corps of Engineers out in American Samoa, in the Marshall Islands, in the Federated States of Micronesia, in Palau already, but they need to be doing a better job in Palau. More on that if we want to go there. But uh, I mean, we need to be building out this infrastructure that need, make it more resilient to environmental uh, changes, but more importantly, operationally resilient. You know, something that's hardened for a typhoon is also hardened to a Chinese cruise missile. And power plants that can weather bad bad storms and lightning hits are also the type of power plants and energy that we need to have in some of these islands when a ship pulls in for repairs. And again, the assumption, and it's one I made more than 10 years ago when I was, when I and in the book, in the preface, I'd give some of the background on this was that we were going back to the future. Uh, in the 30s, we knew we were going to be held to the type of Navy we were going to get. We also had budget constraints. There's a depression that was on. 
but the, the secret ingredient, ingredient was the floating dry docks. And today it's floating dry docks we need. We also need to have heavy lift ships. Uh, we need to have a, a heavier or emphasis on our logistics tail because the Chinese know, and they've known for many years, that that's our weakest link. Uh, so putting the greatest like missile defenses on a carrier and a cruiser or destroyers and things, this is important, must be done. But if we're not protecting our logistics train, then all of that show and flash and bang isn't going to be sustainable in a, in, a, in a real protracted fight with the Chinese. And that's what we're going to get. Uh, it's not going to be over in a couple weeks. And so that logistics chain is, is, is wickedly important. But then it, the second part of your question, and, and I kind of started out a little bit on this, it's also very critical to address, and that is the commercial base. Part of the reason, as I kind of dig, dug more and more and over years of my, you know, trying to address shipbuilding, naval shipbuilding, and the issue that our commercial shipbuilders have that are trying to build these warships for us, is if you don't have a viable, competitive, on the global stage, competitive commercial shipbuilding and shipping sector, you really don't have much capacity to sustain or to grow a Navy. And that's where we are right now. So we have to have a revolution in the way that we think of shipping and also trying to get back in the game and competitive, not by trying to outdo container shipping or LNG shipping, but we need to look at it in a whole different light. How can we change the terms of trade and the, way, and the manner in which maritime trade is conducted? And there's some of that in this book. Uh, there's also some writing I've done outside of the book that kind of gives some insight as to what that'll be, but they go hand in hand. You can't have a big navy without a big commercial shipping sector or shipbuilding. It, that's one of the things that yeah is frustrating because it, it's a, you have to educate for people to understand because it's it's outside of our little fraternity. It, that complicated mm. nature and the, the history of it is really difficult. And I, I was mad at you a little bit about halfway through the book because <laughs> the last thing I need to do is add another book to my my uh, my uh, reading. <laughs> but I'm going to pass. Uh, but you did that to me, and I'm going to pass it because I see our friend John Conrad uh, in the chat room. So I know oh, yeah. he's last like the last couple of minutes. But um, you mentioned Andrew Gibson and author Donovan's book, The Abandoned ah. Ocean. And uh, yes. I, I first time I've heard of it, I, I want to grab that and read about it. But I also um, it, it tied into me with what you said just a few minutes ago and also a point you made early on. Again, we have to know our history. And yes. uh, I know our friend you know, Jerry Hendricks, one of his uh, favorite subjects is the second and third order negative consequences of the 1990s. Um, uh, Bill Perry's Big Supper and the Consolidation of De Defense Industry. Oh, yeah. But you also mentioned that in the mid-1990s, to save money, and <laughs> how did that work out for mm -hmm. the next 25 years, uh, NAVSI decreased its number of engineers by 75%. Yeah. And you, you drew the line yeah. that by losing that, when we had a robust and um, long-dwell Engineer, naval engineering force and NAVSI, mm -hmm. we were able to go through the design process in 24 months. Now we're at 48 months. So that ties into we can't really control what the Chinese do, but we can control what we do. And I thought you pointed out in yes. those particular two areas, that's inside our control. 
Yeah, it, so the, the naval architects, I mean, it's, it's surprising that we don't have more naval architects. We're not producing enough of them in the United States. Uh, and the Navy walked away from that, as you know, mentioned at the end of the Cold War for cost saving. We, we became an efficiencies-based organization, just-in-time military presence. And that's not how militaries function. We have to plan, plan, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And that's not an efficiencies-based model. And I think we're waking up to that reality about 20 years too late. Um, but on the naval architects, I mean, that one's worth drilling down just a little bit on. When you have a ship design, the setting the requirements needs to be informed by good, solid engineering understanding, but most importantly, also experience. And what we walked away from is we let that experience walk out the door, and so we have younger people that are coming in that are having to learn and come up and gain experience and make lots of mistakes as they set requirements that have consequences in the design and the cost and delays and everything. And it, some of it's the mundane, some deciding, do you put five bolts or four bolts? Do you have a 30-degree bend in this pipe or do you have a 36-degree bend in the pipe? Things like that and setting those requirements at that level, we don't have the engineering expertise that we need to have. It's coming back, but it takes years, unfortunately. And that is one of the reasons, in my mind, in my estimation, that we've had delays and cost overruns. It's one. It's not the only one. But it is a factor. And so the better the Navy is as a customer customer, and a better informed one, uh, and, the reason, and the way they can get there is make more Naval architects. The Naval Academy has a school that's dedicated to that. that should, they should triple the size. I think it was like four graduates when I graduated in 94. It, make that a dozen. I mean, start, start pushing out more Naval architects from the Naval Academy. They could, of course, go on to be submariners and pilots. But that basic understanding of naval architecture is something the Navy needs and needs to value much higher than it has. One of the uh, one of the things you talked about, speaking of ship design, is is the new model Navy. Can you kind of go over what uh, oh. what you've stolen from uh, from the Cromwell and uh, uh, yeah. used? So, what do you mean by the new model Navy? Yeah. So. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not a lover. I don't love, like, the history and the man that was Oliver Cromwell. Um, but I did like when the history of what he did to revolutionize the military, the parliamentarians, because what he did is he took what were regional military militias and he nationalized the military. So allegiances to one village or township were washed aside and they were able to move around the country with a, with a large mass and take on uh, the royals and the, the British, the English Civil War. So this, that's the new model army. The new model Navy is the same idea. It's like, hey, we need to restructure. We already talked a little bit about this, but we need to restructure for the modern world and actually own this environment. Uh, and the naval statecraft is part of that, but we need to own this, embrace it, and own it. And one of the ways we do that is to, to identify some of the, and in the book, identify a few of the key technologies that are coming that will not only revolutionize the way that we conduct naval operations or even maritime in the commercial sector, there's a light mention to that, but the book's more in the naval piece, but also will change the way in which we design and build ships. And so there's inside there, I mean, there's the obvious one, artificial intelligence, 
which really artificial intelligence is, is a program, programming architecture that's enabled by processing power. And the processing power has been accelerating and growing, you know, Moore's Law. But in order for it to continue on a, a very significant upward trajectory, to fully embrace what artificial intelligence can offer, quantum computing will be a game changer. So massive, I mean, massive parallel processing and rapid parallel processing of data uh, in a meaningful way, that's what has to happen for artificial intelligence to be, to really achieve its, its, its full capacity. Robotics doesn't get enough attention. I mean, if you've got the brains of a system that can think and provide you a lot of good recommendations, when it's matched to or married to a platform, an unmanned platform, now you really take it to the next level. And so you're always going to have manned ships and manned crews in, in the loop, and always a human being is going to have the accountability for whatever an autonomous killing machine does. That's a whole other deeper discussion. Uh, touch a little bit about that. Um, and the other one that's a little scary this part of this trio of technologies, uh, quantum computing. The other one is bioengineering. And I would submit to you that the scary future of engineered living machines is actually a lot closer than we might realize. And that needs to not be dealt with with fear, but needs to be dealt with for what it is and what it can provide. Uh, for, for things like providing a sound silencing coding on submarines, uh, SHT. So it stuff falls off. If you had a living organism that was around the submarine that provided the same kind of capability, I mean, there's some operational issues about wouldn't it be slippery when you're topside? Uh, but rather than having to repair, it would actually self-heal. Uh, so if you get a hole or a piece of it knocked off over time, even while you're out at sea on a mission, it grows back. One example of what bioengineering can, can do, uh, and DARPA already has done some very amazing stuff. They have multi-cell machine that they produce that can pump, basically a pumping motion, can actually collect material in small piles. I mean, if it's sand or if it's something, debris and, and oil, you want to get all of the metal, metal filaments out of the oil and clean it, here's something that might do that. But what they discovered unexpectedly is those multi-cell machines that they built, in the last year, they realized that they could actually self-heal and replicate. So that's another interesting. Um, some might think it's scary, but that is an element of the future that we need to be prepared for, and, and I would say we need to embrace, uh, along with the artificial intelligence and the quantum computing that, that brings about that. And there's some really other interesting technologies, and there's always all of the greatness should always be cautioned by the reality of good engineering. Uh, wonderful things in physics and things that may be possible, they only are really useful if an engineer can make them real. And so it's going to be some time in some of these. Yeah, the, uh, the, the tactical sea cucumber will, <laughs> will have to wait. You can actually <laughs> think about, uh, you know, the Norwegians are, are going to be opening up some um, area to subsea mining. It'd be interesting to see at the, at the 2050 point uh, that you, you do reference a lot in the book. And, if I'm doing my math right, and there is math in this book, by the way. You can look on page 138 for the folks who are going to buy the book, but we're not going to talk about it. I teased you in the pre-show about it. But, I love that equation. You know, 2050 is to today what I believe 1994 is going the other direction. And I don't know about you kids, mm. but I remember 1994 pretty well. 
and uh, it's uh, so 2050 will be here b- before we before we know it. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of look at what happened in 1994. If you could tell 1994 people what has happened in the last 15, 20 years, they think it'd be pretty weird, uh, unusual, or impossible. So. I think that's something we should all be humble about when we think we know what 2050 mm-hmm. is going to demand. It's going to be an interesting time, but I think some of the things that you outlined there that people roll their eyes at, uh, no, we're already engineering things in the lab that uh, we've lost control of, and it'll happen again. It's mm-hmm. an interesting time. But I also realize, because I think we could talk for like five or six days on this, but we haven't <laughs> talked about Russia yet and uh obviously everybody that's thinking about russia is focused on what's happening in the russia ukrainian war but i I wanted just to to, to have you talk on on two things that i think tie into our larger conversation one is the the beneficial byproduct of the attack on nord stream and that it brought attention to the importance and vulnerability of underwater infrastructure, pipelines, cables, et cetera, and also the fact the non-Arctic nation of China has declared itself mm-hmm. an Arctic nation that's been working a lot with Russia uh, down the road. If you could kind of uh, point where, where that gets your interest in the book. No, I, well, you know, definitely the war in Ukraine and uh, specifically the destruction of Nord Stream highlighted what's been known for a while, but put it into a real sharp highlight. And that is the undersea infrastructure, so gas pipelines, fiber optic cables, uh, these are necessary for nations to function, to keep the lights on and to communicate and to trade. And the Russians, the Chinese too, know this. And it's no secret now that they're out there toying around with these things. And it, it basically is just another data point on this. Oh, the Russians and the Chinese in the Arctic, the Russia, that, that's the Russians. They're very proud and, and very jealously guard that, that northern, uh, their Arctic waterfront. So I'm, I'm curious as to how far they'll go with the Chinese. But, I mean, this strategic partnership is really looking a lot more like a strategic front against the United States that's been operationalized. So... Maybe that'll carry over in the Arctic. But the other point I want to make about why I, I included Russia in this book, and when most people are saying, well, come on, it's a, it's a, it's a gas station with, uh, with nuclear bombs. I, I never bought into that analogy, for, for the record. Um, but the Russians have a knack of playing far above their weight when it comes to screwing with, the, screwing with us and distracting us. And so we need to at least be aware as we go forward that not to lose sight of the competition with China, which is the main thing. How do you keep the main thing the main thing when you got the Russians doing something like invading Ukraine that's going to distract rightfully and start to deplete your, your arsenal rightfully? But how do you manage that and not lose sight of what's going on in the main arena, the main front uh, with China? And so that's why there's a lot of discussion about Russia. It's infused in there, but it's always with that thought in mind. And 2014, there were some things going on that would have got us more in a competitive stance with China. But then you had, of course, the annexation of Crimea, then shortly followed after with Syria, and the island building that was going on was kind of being forgotten about until it couldn't be by, by the Rose Guard meeting in, with, between Xi and Obama 
2015. And so it's important that we don't suffer strategic distraction as we engage in a very, very tense competition. It's a new Cold War. It's, it's not your grandfather's or our Cold War. It's different, but it is a Cold War in many respects. And uh, unlike the Soviets, the Chinese have the Russians and they have the Iranians, they have the North Koreans, and they got other lesser players like the Cubans and the news just now about a spying base that they want to update, and the Venezuelans. They got a lot more dangerous and, I guess, uh, allies of sorts that could cause us strategic distraction if we're not careful. Yeah, one of the at the end of the book, you, you, you set out sailing directions, and being an old navigator, I always like night orders and sailing directions and stuff, but uh, you said to com- to participate effectively in great power competition, the Navy must accomplish two corporate objectives as it moves ahead. One, retain mm-hmm. public confidence while better competing in peacetime day-to-day contests with China and Russia. And two, develop and build a fleet that can win wars and be right, reconstituted quickly during and between wars. And then you have some suggestions yes. to how to go about that. Can you can you kind of walk through the, the sailing directions and and uh, where, where you see this going and who should be following the, the, these things? Well, um, you know, the president is needed because nothing is really possible without a president leaning in heavy into those. Uh, So that's the first thing. And then the next down is the Secretary of the Navy needs to be very consistent and and very, you know, forthright in what's needed, Uh, setting the politics aside or what is easy and going after what's needed for, for the Navy to operate and function and meet those two objectives. And then, of course, it's the senior flag officers. It's even the senior enlisted keeping the ships functioning keeping the equipment running, and that's that competency piece. There's been too many cases, you know, truthful or not, but have that that play into a narrative that our adversaries like the Chinese in Beijing can use and make us look like we are not a competent military service. And so we have to make sure that's not the case. We need to prove it, not to ourselves, but to everyone around the world, that we are the most competent and we are the most lethal naval force in the world, and, and you have to prove it. You can't just say we did it in the World War II or that we did it in the, against the Soviet Union, which we really didn't. We just kind of wore them out in a Cold War competition. It wasn't a naval war like where we're shooting and blowing each other up. But that's, that's that first part, that competency piece, and that day-to-day sailing from seamanship to when you pull into port and you're engaging and you're making a, you're making a statement when your, your sailors are in, in town. And you're also connecting to things beyond the Navy, the economic development. That's that competency piece because that's how we're measured. It's not an American metric that we have to play by in that one. We have to play by and understand our audience better. On that second one, that's, that's that commercial shipbuilding and shipping. Uh, we, need to, we need to revitalize that because that's what we're going to rely on in a war to repair and replace the fleet as it gets sunk in a, hot, in a, in a conflict with China. And then we also, like right now, we need to do better on building the ships that we need at the numbers that we need. We should be maximizing every shipyard that we have right now. We should be figuring out a way to maximize what they can do today and put the orders in to maximize the production. Destroyers, submarines, aircraft carriers, logistics ships. There's 45 ships that we know that we need in this FIDA to, to order. And we know that those designs are stable. We know how much it would cost. Put the order in 
and that's what we know from uh, Freedom's Forge in the 30s leading into World War II is if you put the order in, they will build it. Uh, it takes two to three years to tool up second and third order co contractors. It takes three to five years to get the capital investments in the shipyards to make expansions for graving docks, more dry docks, cranes, uh, highly automated fabrication systems that don't all come from the United States for building submarines. So we're in the do we're in the window now for urgent action on that. So uh, those are my thoughts on those two. The, uh, the the sailing plan lays out uh, pretty concisely kind of the measure for that. Didn't talk too much about posture, but that's another key one. We need to be where it matters in the decisive theaters with uh, China, most importantly, but Russia too. I mean, going back to JPME one here when your comments you're just making about uh, a certain part of naval diplomacy where it brings in the presence mission and being there and having the, the enough fleet that you can actually be there if you want to be the, the global navy mm -hmm. setting and maintaining it and this is a touchy subject but that's you know in your old dime that's the informational side of the equation and when you're talking with people about things that we control that we can do better you know, we've talked a bit about uh, diplomacy. Of course, Department of State has a lot to do with that. Naval diplomacy, uh, that's its own little subset of things that we do in uniform mm -hmm. that ties into that presence mission a little bit. Uh, the military side of the equation, uh, I, the numbers, I believe you, you mentioned how as when the People's Republic of China's Navy grew by, I think, 117, we grew by five. You know, you can make that argument. People will accept that. Yeah. The economic argument, supply chains, people will get that. But you see a fair bit of pushback where even uh, our most senior uniformed leadership do not appreciate either verbally or in actions on how we maintain our ships and our personnel. The presence mission, yeah. it's downplayed. People will poo-poo it. We, uh, and I, I know this is one of my pet peeves, but uh, it, yeah. you talked, you spend years, like I know you have, you spend a lot of years overseas, as have I. It's a regular topic with our peers. When uh, a U.S. warship pulls into port or goes in formation and looks like a late Soviet information trawler from appearances, it advertises um, the opposite message that you want to send in the informational realm. Mm -hmm. um, what do you yeah, see? Yeah, I'd say that's that competency. That, that goes into competency. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So that when you when you have a ship that looks like, and I'm trying to, I have to use, check my language a little bit, but a ship that looks like like it hasn't been taken care of, or it's well beyond its its useful livelihood, it sends a very negative signal uh, to all around, and it's that unspoken. Uh, message and sure maybe the ship may still be just as lethal it may actually be functioning and maybe they'll, they'll wash that off later that, that rust spots but that's not the point it's that competency it it feeds into a narrative that the US Navy is not competent if it can't do the little things then it obviously can't do the big things and what you don't want that is to feed into your adversary that says God these Americans can't even keep their ships uh, like looking like they're ready for for battle that probably means they're not ready for battle. So if we're going to take them on a fight, we probably don't need to worry as much for them, which makes the odds of a fight occurring higher. So it all feeds into that calculation in, our, in Beijing of when to go to war. And 
You know, a well-kept ship is a well-fought ship. That's well put. Um, We've taken up an hour of your time, and we could go on. This book is this book is really interesting, and it's got a lot of uh, amazing thoughts about how the future fleet should look. But uh, rather than keep you for uh, two or three weeks here, uh, I think it's time to ask you the questions. You know, what what are you working on now? Uh, When can they where where can our people find it? Listeners find it, and and, uh, uh, what's what's next? You got another book in you? Yeah, I'm about sixty percent of the way done. I was uh, well, it'll probably based on how sales have been going on this book. It's been uh, very strong. There's been a lot of interest uh, even overseas in it, so it'll probably get translated into several different languages. So I'm about 60% done on a successor book that dives into, it's not the same, but dives into some of the areas that we've been talking today in much greater detail. Uh, as far as what's coming, if you go to uh, heritage.org and you, you look up me, Brent Sadler, you'll find all my writings. And if you go to LinkedIn and you want to find what I'm doing, Go to LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I, pu- I push, push everything that I write. I've got one, like I said, that's on operational energy that has some challenges, a lot of faulty assumptions about uh, not only our military operational energy and with the closure of Red Hill, it should resonate with some, but also a wartime economy. How would we keep the lights on in that? So that one's coming out probably in the next month or two. I've, I've got another one on Chinese basing uh, policy and tactics. Uh, that'll be coming out probably in the next month or month as well. Well, Brett, that is a lot to chew on. And again, I highly recommend to everybody if uh, we've, we've kind of made some jokes about it, but this is information dense. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about your latest book, U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, a new strategy for facing the Chinese and Russian threat. You're a great guest, and you work so much. We're going to have other excuses to invite you on in the future. We look forward to the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it, and thanks, and have a rest, uh, best of the rest of your Sunday evening. Great. Thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and pick a billy Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary Tipperary.